Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's Friday, October 14th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, the FCC has just announced new rules to combat space junk. Plus, remember the company trying to bring back the woolly mammoth? The CIA just invested in them. Plus, a previously unheard Queen song featuring Freddie Mercury's vocals was just released. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Space junk is a serious issue. Since we started launching things into space in the 50s, used satellites, rocket stages, and other debris have steadily accumulated in orbit around our planet. The number of objects in space went from being in the hundreds in the 60s to just over 5,000 in 1990 to 10,000 in 2010 and over 27,000 now. And now, that's not all junk. Much of that is active satellites. In recent years, so-called mega-constellations have been on the rise. SpaceX's Starlink accounts for more than half of all active satellites, at about 3,000, with plans to grow to 12,000 in the coming years. Amazon is also planning to send several thousand satellites up as part of their Starlink competitor, Project Cooper. And the British company OneWeb also accounts for about 400 satellites. But these satellites don't last forever, and once they've completed their mission, they often just stay in orbit, joining the thousands of other pieces of unused instruments and debris journeying around and around the Earth, threatening to bump into active satellites or one of the space stations. I say bump, but because of the speed the junk is traveling, about 15,700 miles per hour when in low Earth orbit, it actually doesn't take very much at all for substantial damage to be done. Even very small pieces of debris could severely damage active spacecraft. Quoting NASA, Even tiny paint flecks can damage a spacecraft when traveling at these velocities. A number of space shuttle windows were replaced because of damage caused by material that was analyzed and shown to be paint flecks. In fact, millimeter-sized orbital debris represents the highest mission-ending risk to most robotic spacecraft operating in low Earth orbit. In 1996, a French satellite was hit and damaged by debris from a French rocket that had exploded a decade earlier. On February 10, 2009, a defunct Russian spacecraft collided with and destroyed a functioning U.S. Iridium commercial spacecraft. The collision added more than 2,300 pieces of large, trackable debris and many more smaller debris to the inventory of space junk. China's 2007 anti-satellite test, which used a missile to destroy an old weather satellite, added more than 3,500 pieces of large, trackable debris and many more smaller debris to the debris problem. 
end quote. And those last two cases is what experts are particularly trying to avoid. Big collisions that create even more debris, and according to Purdue University astrodynamical researcher Carolyn Froy in a 2018 Scientific American article on the topic, enough uncontrolled collisions could create a cascade of fragments that eventually reaches a point of no return. In other words, renders near-Earth space unusable. Now, there are ways for both spacecrafts and satellites to dodge incoming orbital debris if they see it coming. For the International Space Station specifically, NASA tracks an area two and a half miles deep by 30 miles across and 30 miles long, an imaginary boundary that they call the pizza box because of its flat shape. And if any tracked object passes close enough to the pizza box, Houston and Moscow work together on an evasive course of action. Like in November of 2021, when debris from Russia blowing up one of their satellites in Earth orbit caused the astronauts on the ISS to have to take shelter inside the Soyuz and Crew Dragon spacecrafts for two hours. Usually, it doesn't come to that, but monitoring and engaging in evasive maneuvers takes up precious time and resources, and with the U.S. military issuing an average of 21 warnings of potential collisions each day, it's like a constant game of whack-a-mole. So, it was welcome news to many that the U.S. Federal Communications Commission last month announced a new proposal that would require satellites licensed in the U.S. or that seek to access the U.S. market be deorbited within five years of the end of their mission. The current rule is to deorbit satellites within 25 years, a rule established back in the 90s when we had about 10% the amount of space junk we do now. Quoting Wired, Deorbiting a dead satellite means moving it to a lower orbit where it will eventually fall into Earth's atmosphere and burn up, a waste incineration solution rather than leaving garbage just floating around or developing new space trash cleanup technologies to pick it up. Next-generation spacecraft might be equipped with thrusters and fuel reserves to make the job easier, although that will be an engineering challenge for the operators of very small satellites like CubeSats, It'll also likely add to launch costs and might break limited budgets. Leaving junk in space for less time means moving it lower down so it burns up sooner. Darren McKnight, senior technical fellow at a space debris tracking company, argues that satisfying the five-year rule is worthwhile and a one-year rule would be better, because that would mean pushing defunct satellites to an altitude below 250 miles, which would limit risks to the International Space Station, China's Tiangong Space Station, and other crucial spacecraft. And McKnight thinks that technological advancements, like a shift from chemical to electrical propulsion will make it possible to move a satellite even if only 1% of the launch payload's mass is fuel. Other innovations might help too, says Marlon Sorge, aerospace technical fellow at the Aerospace Corporation. Adding propulsion for small satellites is pretty difficult, but there are other options, like drag enhancement devices. These are things that deploy a long tether or a sail that increases its area, he says, end quote. How any company technically achieves the deorbit is not specified, and likely won't be. A bigger question from critics and supporters alike is how this will be enforced. Some companies already voluntarily deorbit their satellites soon after they're finished with them, but others never do. How do we enforce a stricter rule when some aren't even following the existing, more lenient one? Some also question whether this is an overstep of the FCC's authority. They say it should perhaps be up to the Department of Commerce, which, according to Scientific American, was tasked with tackling space debris by the White House, or perhaps the Federal Aviation Administration. 
And for their part, NASA isn't completely on board with the five-year rule. The Interagency National Space Council has been asked to conduct an updated study to be completed in 2023, which will likely establish the new standards that NASA follows. Meanwhile, the European Space Agency earlier this year announced their intentions to be debris neutral by 2030. And that harkens back to McKnight's point in Wired about a one-year rule being even better than a five-year rule. Because while five sounds way better than 25, it sounds like the number was fairly arbitrary and not quite as impactful as you might think. Hugh Lewis, a space debris expert from the University of Southampton, shared some of his modeling, which indicates, quoting Scientific American, a five-year rule provides only a 3-4% to improvement in the total amount of orbiting space junk versus a 25-year rule. With no de-orbit rule in place, this modeling indicates a potential for some 133 collisions across the next two centuries. A 25-year rule reduces that to 55 collisions, but a five-year rule just lowers the number to 43 collisions. NASA's own analysis in 2019 showed only an 11% improvement after 200 years. That got dismissed in the FCC proposal, Lewis said, noting that it would be more effective to reduce deorbit times to essentially zero. Doing so would require that satellites come straight back into the atmosphere after the end of their mission, end quote. So, yeah, maybe the best practice really is just deorbiting at least all satellites as soon as they're done with their mission. Now, the good news is that some satellite companies previously committed to a five-year or less deorbiting plan through the guidance of organizations like the Space Safety Coalition. And on the same day of this new FCC proposal, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics released new guidelines created in collaboration with SpaceX, OneWeb, and Iridium that set a goal of just one year for deorbiting. So whether the FCC was the right authority to propose these rules, if five years is too much or not enough, and if we aren't sure the best way to implement the rules, the good news is that the problem is being worked on. As Scientific American put it, at least it's on the agenda. Remember the biotech company trying to bring back the woolly mammoth? to de-extinct the megafauna. I've brought them up a number of times on this show. Most recently, back in August, I shared the company Colossal Biosciences' intention to do a de-extinction trial run with Tasmanian tigers. Links to all those previous episodes are in the show notes if you want to get the details again about how the de-extinction would work exactly. But today I wanted to share an update. Out there, as this ambition may seem to some, Colossal Biosciences has a lot of strong investors behind it, including, as of last month, the CIA. Or, to be specific, the CIA's venture capital firm, InQtel, has listed Colossal in their portfolio and published a detailed blog post about why it believes in solving global issues through biology. Now, how does de-extincting the woolly mammoth solve global issues related to the climate emergency? Quoting IFL Science, According to Colossal, the end result won't technically be a woolly mammoth, but rather a carbon copy of the mammoth in the form of a cold-resistant elephant. It will then be returned to the core habitat of mammoths and restore the mammoth steppe once the Earth's most extensive biome. Restoration of the biome and related conservation efforts are then hoped to prevent the melting of the Arctic permafrost, thus avoiding the release of vast quantities of methane trapped within. End quote. 
Gizmodo points out that there are many critiques around de-extinction. First, why not fund conservation efforts for animals that are still around? And second, as stated above, you aren't really de-extincting them, but creating sort of proxies that look like the extinct ones. And those proxies won't have others of their kind to teach them how to behave like their OG ancestors did. Not to mention concerns around harming the new animals or them harming other animals in whatever environment they're plopped down into. And since the original habitats of these animals no longer exist, could just plopping proxy clones of the extinct species into the same location really be enough to recreate those habitats? Is the whole restoration of the biome thing really possible? Fortunately, I guess, it doesn't seem like any of that is really why the CIA, or rather InQtel, really cares. The 20-year-old firm funded by the CIA's stated mission is investing in technologies that bolster national security. How does bringing back extinct species like the woolly mammoth, the Tasmanian tiger, and the dodo, another one on Colossal's bucket list, contribute to America's national security? Well, the technology behind the de-extinction is apparently one to watch. And whether Colossal's rewilding goals come to fruition, heck, even if they don't quite de-extinct any species successfully, the work they're doing towards that goal is something the CIA is very interested in. Here's how InQtel explained it themselves in a blog post, quote, "'It's less about the mammoths and more about the capability.'" The next wave of progress in synthetic biology, or SYNBIO, will lead to advances in our ability to shape both form and function in organisms at the macroscopic level. Solving the challenges that must be overcome in engineering animals and plants, making massively parallel and highly accurate genome edits, making healthy sperm and eggs from edited stem cells, and gestating large animals to term, will unlock such capabilities as programming the physical properties of wood to improve building materials, preventing the extinction of not-yet-extinct but endangered animal species, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, further enhancing crop species to tolerate increasingly severe climactic changes, and curing human diseases such as sickle cell anemia, muscular dystrophy, and many kinds of cancer. And why is this a big deal? We now sit at a pivotal point in history, where transnational issues, pandemics, climate change, population growth, human migration— intersect with nation-to-nation competition that will increase the potential for global conflict in the coming decades, a reality that was formally recognized this week by the Biden administration in the release of the Executive Order on Advancing Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Innovation for a Sustainable, Safe, and Secure American Bioeconomy. At a White House summit held to discuss the executive order, participants made clear the importance of U.S. government support for SynBio through early-stage funding of innovative companies and the training of world-class scientists and engineers. Nations whose biotechnology infrastructure and industry excel will be well-positioned to achieve early those goals listed at the top of this article. Perhaps more importantly, leadership in biotechnology will allow the U.S. to help set the ethical as well as the technological standards for the use of this technology. How we employ the potentially staggering power of biotechnology to shape the planet and humanity itself will matter as much as our ability to do so. End quote. So that's how this qualifies as technology in the interest of national security. The CIA is betting big on synthetic biology, and they see Colossal as one of the companies at the forefront of breakthroughs. 
It's not so much about the woolly mammoth, but about the lessons you learn along the way. Well, speaking of bringing powerhouses back from the beyond, the remaining members of Queen have just released a lost song from the 80s featuring Freddie Mercury's vocals. Band member Brian May told BBC Radio 2 that the song had been recorded during sessions for their 13th studio album, The Miracle, back in 1988. And during those sessions, they laid down 30 different tracks. Many of them were never released. Ahead of a new box set reissue of The Miracle, the band found the recording for this song, Face It Alone, and initially didn't think that it could be technically salvaged, but their engineering team worked some magic to stitch it back together. Drummer Roger Taylor said, quote, We'd kind of forgotten about this track, but there it was, this little gem. It's wonderful, a real discovery. It's a very passionate piece, end quote. And May said, quote, I'm happy that our team were able to find this track. After all these years, it's great to hear all four of us. Yes, John Deacon is there too, working in the studio on a great song idea, which never quite got completed until now, end quote. Here's a quick listen to the power ballad, Face It Alone. Your life is your own. You're in charge of yourself. Master of your Face It Alone will be included in that box set reissue of The Miracle, which is set to come out on November 18th. It's not the first track featuring Mercury's vocals to be released after his death in 1991. Three other publicly unheard songs were included in a 2014 compilation album. This one, though, does absolutely have an incredibly strong emotional resonance to it. You can listen to the whole song at the links in the show notes. All right, well, that's going to be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.